Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of Certified Forgotten. I am, as always, one half of your Matt hosts. I'm Matt Monagle. You know this. You've listened to the show. You know what the deal is. And I am joined by my friend, by my colleague, by the guy who makes me watch movies I don't want to watch, Matt Donato. How you doing, bud? Good, but technically, I don't make you watch them. Our guests make you watch them. Well, I'm talking about outside of this. A lot of times you make recommendations, and then I don't like those recommendations. Well, like horror comedies more. I don't know what else to tell you. Get better taste. Sorry, buddy. I'm I'm sorry. Go watch Sauna for the 17th time while you're listening to the Hagazooza soundtrack. Correct. And now we can make some sort of an Empty Man joke there, too. Uh, all right. So if this is your first time listening to this show, congratulations. You have found the best horror show in the podcast verse that talks about movies with five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. As far as I know, we're the only one. So it's not exactly a high bar to cross. But hey, here we are. And every week, it's not just Matt and I, we bring on an excellent guest to talk about some of the best horror that you haven't seen. Uh, and this week, is, is is it's no exception. We got a guy here who who knows his indie horror film as well as anybody and who is no stranger to the podcast scene. Matt Donato, can you do the introductions, please? Well, yes, Mr. Monagle. We have a fantastic guest, as always. This is no exception. We have the co-host of the Scarred for Life podcast and editor-chief owner, Gailey Dreadful, Terry Menard. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? Only took three tries. No one at home had to know that, but I'm telling you anyway. <laughs> you certainly did. You, you just you just put it all out there. Terry, I want to say uh, welcome to the podcast. This is a weird podcast for us because the service, let's just get this out of the way. The service that we normally use to record audio now does video. So we're all just sort of looking at each other when we've never looked at each other before. It's not unwelcome, but it's also a little uncommon. So we're going to be figuring out our new dynamic and what is now a video first audio podcast, which makes absolutely no sense. Um, which hopefully means that when you delight us with some awesome stories, Terry, we're going to laugh extra hard for you. How's that sound? Oh, that's, that sounds great. I wish I had known that this would be video, though, because I would have wore like, you know, my crop top or something. But no, it's OK. I'm going to spend this entire podcast checking out the entire shelf of board games you got in the back. That is that is where my heart lies. <laughs> there is a lot back there, but just just ignore it because there's a, there's a lot of mess. I was not aware of the video beforehand. <laughs> For the people at home who cannot see, there are a lot of board games in the background of Terry's video. <laughs> yes, I am an avid board game player. So we're going to talk about that on a different podcast that we haven't created yet, but probably <laughs> in the future. Um, so Terry, let's talk about you, Matt. So this is you know the premise of the show. We like to talk to our guests about kind of how they got their early start in the horror genre. And as somebody who slices and dices horror from at least four different ways from your various endeavors... You know, I'm really excited to hear what kind of stuff you're going to say about your own relationship to the genre. So let's start at the very beginning. What was the first horror movie? What was the first horror experience? What was the thing you remember um, that maybe scarred you for life, if I may? <laughs> uh, well, I'll say I'll say, Monaco, I kind of thought we'd come on here and we just sort of take over because uh, we're both we both lived in Alaska. That, I Did I know that? Did I know that? Is that a thing I knew? I'm not sure. Maybe on Twitter we talked about it at once, but yes, uh, I lived in Alaska for about like the first eight-ish years of my life. Oh, now this is just going to be a childhood therapy session. Did it suck for you too? It did. It was very okay. lonely. <laughs> okay. All right. It wasn't just me then. Thank you. No, it was it was very lonely. And I, I, where did you, you lived in, in Juneau, right? Is that, is that correct? correct? Yeah. For about 20 yeah. years. Wow. Yeah. I was a... Uh, a lot more south. We were about 20 miles outside of Anchorage in a town called Eagle River. Okay, I know. Very yeah, small. Yeah. That is a cute part of the state, though. If you were ever to visit Alaska, probably that's the area I would tell people to go is the Eagle River area. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. It really is. It's just uh, not a whole... I, there's a lot to do outside, but like if you're trying to... If you're an introvert like me and you don't have a lot of friends, it can be a very lonely experience. So you end up watching a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. which is what I did. My, my, my dad was um, a huge fan of like universal monster movies and uh, some of those movies growing up between like the thirties and the fifties. So my childhood or I mean, an initial experience with horror was more of the fun side to me. It was like Dracula and Frankenstein uh, creature from the black lagoon, as well as like the Abbott and Costello movies, particularly Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which was one of my favorites as a kid. And then there was that period, and then there was the period of when I was about eight years old, and my family introduced me to Alien, and that movie wrecked me. Mm, say more. Say more, Terry. What do you have for me here? 
Well, I, you know, up until that point, movies with aliens were flying saucers. It was the day the earth stood still. It was that kind of thing where it was just like flying saucers and 50s cheese. And so I went into this film not knowing anything about it. And when the dinner scene happens, uh, my face was basically like whiter than it could possibly be now and just terrified. And we stopped the movie and I didn't want to watch it ever again. And then that made me want to watch it. <laughs> like I, I remember watching the sequel and being okay with the sequel. And by the time I was okay with the sequel, then I went back and was like, okay, I can tackle this movie. And that was sort of my introduction to the not safe horror. So how old were you when you finally like reclaimed alien for yourself? You know, that whole time was sort of, a, was sort of like a haze. Like I'm, I'm so old now that I can't really remember, but I think it was somewhere between like eight or nine is when I, when I eventually like revisited it after I'd watched aliens like multiple times, it was just enamored with it. I was like, okay, I can go tackle the first one again. That's still really young. Like eight, eight, eight or nine for Alien is still a really young viewing experience, especially if you're going back to try and like conquer your six or seven year old fears. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, I, I it was my, my parents when when I first started out, my parents were very lax on what I could watch. It was just I had a they had a rule that originally they had a rule that I, if there was nudity in it, I had to cover my eyes, which as a closeted gay kid, not seeing breasts is not a problem for me. But my parents, of course, didn't know that. <laughs> right. I didn't really know that at the time either. Right. Uh, that's, the, that's the closeted. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So like for for a while there, it was uh, it was kind of carte blanche in some ways. Like if, if the if the VHS cover was too evocative, my parents would say no. But for a lot of movies, Nightmare on Elm Street was OK. Some of the Friday the 13th were OK. So I just sort of like went through that that like span of the 80s slashers and then my parents started to really lean into the whole Reagan era and the the whole like conservative feel. And all of a sudden they stopped letting me watch R rated movies. And at that point I found books, which were not being policed by my parents or the bookstore. Yeah. That's um, so my wife works in publishing and I've mentioned this. One of my favorite quotes of her is mentioned this in the podcast before, but she says, she always says her parents let her read stuff. She never, she had no fucking business reading because yep. like her parents were like, it, these are books. How could this like, how could this be books? And she was basically like, it's fantasy smut. I'm reading fantasy smut. But my parents had no idea. But her parents had no idea because it's just, you know, how dangerous can words on a page be? So I feel like a lot of people, like your parents would be like, you're not going to watch this this movie, Hellraiser. This looks disgusting. You go ahead and read your Clive Barker book. And exactly. Like that disconnect for a lot of folks. And that's and that's what happened for me, where it was basically like I went from I was I, I was introduced to horror fiction in fifth grade by my English teacher. Well, I, not English teacher, like my my fifth grade teacher that was reading to us uh, Goosebumps because that had just come out. And like that was like the big thing. And so they, she read like the very first Goosebumps book to me and I fell in love with it. And then all of a sudden I went from Goosebumps to reading Stephen King, to reading Clive Barker, to reading uh, like Koontz and uh eventually uh like american psycho so like i'm reading all of these books and like my and somewhere between you know sixth grade and into to high school and i'm reading these books that are just way way more mature than i probably should have been reading at the time but parents didn't know so i i, st- I, I didn't watch a lot of movies during that period because they were being police so horror fiction became my kind of gateway well let me ask about the community element. Cause you said, you know, lonely kid growing up in Alaska, <laughs> Boy, yeah. I fucking relate to that. Um, <laughs> did you find as you were kind of later in life, exploring both horror fiction and, and horror films, um, did you, is that when you started to feel like you, you were able to build a little community for yourself? We've had a lot of guests that have come on and said it was like, it was the fellow horror geeks that started to give them their first sense of belonging in high school or in college. Did you have a similar experience when you started to like connect to other horror fans? Unfortunately, no. Um, I had the 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 reverse. I was a very. Um, I think I, I was listening to your episode with um, Ari Drew, where he was talking about being kind of like guarded, and that was my experience too. Especially being a, a closet gay kid that didn't quite understand his own sexuality and didn't come out till he was thirty. I spent a lot of my time very guarded and very uh, distant from people, and my only experience at that time with uh, with like horror movies and the horror community was very much the sort of aggro straight dude and it just i i was like i don't i can't 
I can't be a part of this because then people will discover that I'm different. And so I stayed away for a very long time. Um, and it wasn't, it, it wasn't until for the horror side of things, it wasn't until like 2016 ish when I discovered podcasts and discovered that there were a bunch of people talking intelligently about horror and talking about horror in ways that weren't that kind of aggro kind of dude that I realized that there's a whole huge community out here. So I didn't find the horror community until later in life. I had fallen more into the the gaming side of things, which ended up turning into a cesspool eventually. But <laughs> Look, it's, it's about ethics and games journalism. Terrible. Oh, it, it absolutely is. It, it, it always is. was about that. It, it, whatever. <laughs> so you're, so you're telling me then kind of your connection. Cause, cause there are, you, you recognize themes when you talk to a lot of people about their early days in horror, you know, there's definitely similar patterns of like, Oh, I discovered something awful or like I discovered internet forums and there was communities of folks, but you're saying that it was actually, you kind of skipped that like internet 1.0 period and jumped right into like the podcast generation. And that's kind of where, where you started to, to make a community for yourself. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, cause it, it also happened that at the time when like the internet 1.0 was happening, I was more invested in the video game and video games. So like I had a, I had a live journal and I was involved with a lot of live journal communities with around surrounding video games that were very like accepting and welcoming and so that was sort of my entryway into thinking critically about entertainment was that I started writing about video games in ways that I'd eventually write about movies. And that led to a, uh, a writing job for um, Control Out Delete. It's a comic. I don't know if it's still going around anymore, but like back in like the early 2000s, Penny Arcade and Control Out Delete were like the big, the two big oh, yeah. comics for video games. Oh, yeah. And uh, Control It's Elite had uh, Tim Buckley, the guy that draws those comics, he had decided he wanted to start like a, a video game criticism arm of his uh, empire called CAD Media, Control It's Elite Media. And he had requested people. I had applied for it and started writing for there. And that became sort of like my my intro into writing about art outside of like I was an English, I was an English major. So like I wrote about books and all that kind of stuff. But in terms of and entertainment stuff that was sort of my my entryway so when did you find yourself uh, pivoting back to horror i mean when did you decide that you had not only you know a voice but also something you wanted to say about the industry and when did you really feel like you you there were people out there that wanted to hear it well it was it was back in about like well it, it was kind of a slow journey it was started in around 2016 when i started listening to a lot of podcasts and i started realizing that there were queer presence because by that time i was out so I saw there's a lot of queer presence in podcasts like Michael Verratti with his uh, uh, Dead for Filth. And there was a bunch of other smaller podcasts out there that I was like, oh, so maybe horror is welcoming. And at that point, I'd always wanted to write about it. I had kind of early in my, my 20s, I had dabbled with doing screenwriting and that kind of stuff. So I'd always had like an interest in it. I just didn't realize until about 2016, 17, that there was potentially a community there for me. And then that's when I got the idea, like, I want to start a website because I hate pitching. It, it, pitching, I admire everyone that likes to pitch because I absolutely hate it. And at that time, I had looked back at, at my work at, at in the video game stuff in the industry that was gone. Like, it's it's you can go find it in the Wayback Machine. But I was like, I don't want to have the stuff that I write be controlled by someone else. And so I was like, maybe I'll start my own website. And so that's kind of how that all began. It started as a slow process in 2016 until uh, launch of Gaily Dreadful in 2018. To be fair, I don't think anyone likes pitching. <laughs> it's an ugly byproduct of what we do. And by God, if I didn't have to pitch, that would be a totally different story. But yeah, I 100%. That control is just something that, just the freedom. I think we've talked about it a few times in the podcast and having that freedom to write what you want, especially you know in the sense that you just said, you found a way to not only express yourself, but to reach other people because you realized that this community was so much bigger. Uh, it, it is yep. it's something special when you can kind of carve that out. And I, you know, again, with just with the charity work you're able to do on the website, it just speaks to enough of the fact of the community that you have built. Yeah. And that was sort of like a, a lark, like it, everything I do, it seems like a lark uh, the, the, the creating the website. I was like, yeah, I'll do a website. I don't know how to build a website. Oh, there's a thing called Squarespace. I'll just sign up for that. And then it's like, I, I had in 2019, I was like, oh, I wonder if anyone would be interested in, in writing articles for, you know, pride month. And then that became a whole thing. And it just, it's like, 
everything around me just that I that I get involved with is just like, I wonder if that'll happen. <laughs> Talk to me about a uh, scar for life because it was it, like it's a frustratingly good idea. It's such a fucking good idea for a podcast and i was so annoyed when i first heard about it because i was like why the fuck didn't i think of that it's just it's one of those brilliant ideas to bring people in and talk about the horror films that scared them and left a lasting impression on them so like how did you how did you kind of grow that to the fact where now like if it kind of feels like if you're an independent filmmaker if you're an independent horror filmmaker you know one of the stops on the publicity cycle man it's got to be scarred for life you're going to go and you're going to tell you and mary beth what the hell scared you as a kid like it's that level of foundation for for these filmmakers i have a hard time taking compliments so but thank you <laughs> and it's on video too so you have to look at me looking at you i know this is you. so awkward it's wonderful i, I just want to say that as a, as the co-host of scar for life that this is incredibly uncomfortable for me because it's normally like i just get to like ask the questions and let people talk and that is not the case now and it's sorry you're a tastemaker and an influencer let's hear it terry talk oh about God. yourself that also started as a lark. I there was there was someone was I don't remember who it was, but someone was tweeting about arachnophobia in uh, around like July of nineteen, and I was like, oh god, that movie scarred me. That movie terrified me as a kid and actually changed the way that I interacted with the world. And I was like, hmm, that's a fun podcast idea. So I just sort of like retweeted it. It was like, here's a podcast idea. And then Mary Beth was like, hey, I had talked about doing this by by myself like two years ago and had a whole spreadsheet of, of stuff I wanted to do with it and I was like well it seems like it's meant to be let's let's do it and then everything from there is just sort of been like forced gumping my way through uh the process not a bad place to be it's it's fun it's it was a really good it was really good during covid with like keeping a schedule. I'm sure you guys know this of like, mm -hmm. you, you know, I have this movie to prepare for. So it kept me like on this regular schedule of things that I had to do that just sort of helped create a community and then helped basically take my mind off of the shit show that was happening outside. So we're about to jump into the, the talking about the movie portion, but I got, I'm going to ask, can I ask you a, a capital Q question that you made oh. me think of when you were talking about your experience a little bit in the games journalism? Mm. Looking at the way that that industry, those audiences and that fandom has kind of had to recognize and reckon with um, some of the more toxic elements of it, I can't help but feel like you sort of went out of the frying pan and into the fire with like film journalism and film criticism to kind of have the same the same catharsis or the same event. So I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. Do you have any insights from your time in game journalism about sort of where you see the future of broader, broadly speaking, the film community or the horror community in particular, where you see that heading and what gives you, I don't know, hope or excitement that it is going to be the inclusive space that you really want it to be? Well, I just, I see the the future of, I see people that are starting to come up now through, through Twitter and through their writings. And it's a lot of people of that aren't typically accepted in video game journalism, where the problem with video game journalism was is that everyone was very toxic with their communities and everyone is very much like a we're team Xbox or we're team PlayStation or we are team bigotry. And, uh, was that a console and... that I missed? That was a <laughs> it didn't, it, it did really well for a couple of years or everyone kept saying that, it, you know, it was, it wasn't what it was. And then it ended up that fizzling. Yeah, no, it's better than I... the dreamcast. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> Oh, poor dreamcast. So as I think that one of the things that we need to do is we need to make sure that we're protecting what we're talking about and not let these fringe groups take over conversations. And I see that happen a lot on Twitter where people are like elevating other other voices. And, and fortunately, I'm seeing it happen a lot from a lot of the, the big names in, in horror. And that's what needs to happen. It needs to be that we are creating an inclusive space so that people like me can feel welcome and not and realize that horror journalism is for everybody that it's not just for a specific subset of people, which was my bias before coming into it. And I, I see, I see we're doing that on a daily basis and it's not, it's not perfect. And I do think that there is some areas that of not necessarily horror criticism, but film where it's like, I, if you ask me, I would never want to review a DC film or a Marvel film because that reminds me too much of the sort of like uh, boxing camps in, in horror or in, a, in video game journalism. So there are areas about that that I just sort of steer clear of, but I think I think horror it seems to be in a, in a relatively decent place. We just need to protect that. Yeah, and I feel like 
we are in a way. I feel like things have changed so much, you know, even thinking back to, man, what I used to read on some of these websites and how they used to interact and how when I was growing up and I when I would read Joe Blow, when I would read Dread mm. Central, it read a lot differently than it even mm-hmm. reads right now. I think there are sites that did stay in that mindset of, as you said before, like, hard journalism and hard writing was a lot of aggro straight dude i don't even want to call it humor i don't know what it was it was just that personality and it is so off-putting to even look back on and to think that like that was all it was for such a long time mm-hmm. and the stuff that we can now read on like bloody disgusting which wasn't perfect for a while ago like don't get me wrong that was just like all the others but the strides they've taken and the strides that other uh, sites have taken and you know what fango is doing so much and what all these sites are trying to do it makes me very hopeful from where, again, I was reading a decade ago and, you know, a decade is a long time, but also it's not really. So like no. there, it, it didn't have to change the way it did. And it didn't have to change in the sense that even going to festivals and that was the way that I kind of broke into it. And I didn't feel like I was really part of a horror community for a long time because I didn't get into horror until later. I was not viewed mm-hmm. as someone who was knowledgeable. I was not viewed as someone who knew what they were talking about just because I didn't have that quote unquote cred. I didn't dress like everyone else right. and do that kind of stuff. So going to festivals and like you said, finding those people that didn't give a shit about that. And all of a sudden, you know, like bumping into trace and becoming friends with trace and bumping in all these people and kind of like doing it that way. That was, yeah, it felt really good at that point. And I, I think we have come a long way from again, the hottie of the week posts on arrow in the head and Joe blow. But I think I still see them there sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and there's, I, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with it. Like I, I've, I've run a, I've run a post on, on, on my site from someone that was breaking down the hottest men in Friday the Thirteenth series. Like, it, it's, it's, it's human nature. It's, it's what we're going to talk about. But we need to have, we need to have room for other voices. And that, and that was the thing that I realized listening to podcasts originally was that oh, there are other voices, and I think that we need to make sure that we are creating space for those other voices so that we become a more diverse and more friendly group of people that we've been, we, I, I mean, I've seen strides in the last even two years that I've been, that I've been doing this. And I think, I think we are in an upward trajectory personally. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's definitely a sense that, um, I don't know, it's a fine line to walk between being passionate about something, being invested in something and taking ownership over something. And I think that last part is usually where things go a little bit awry, right? Mm. Like it, it's fine for you to be a fan of, of horror. It's fine for you to be a fan of DC or Marvel. But when you start to say things like that's not that's not the way that I, you know, that's not my vision for this. Like, you know, they cast the wrong person, they gender swapped or, you know, they cast a, an actor of color in a role that I didn't want. Once you stop participating in a thing that exists and sort of defending the concept of it that exists in your head, that's where things get ugly. And I think generally speaking, I think the horror community is really good about not crossing into that line of ownership. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of horror fans that are very rooted in the type of horror that they want to see, but specifically, you know, thinking about the you know horror Twitter community, I think they do a good job of, of balancing the fact that like they care deeply, deeply about this thing but they are not. Their personal identity is not so invested in it that if somebody does something different than they would do, right. or if they make a change, you know, that's not a personal attack on them. That isn't. They don't read that as somebody saying like, you know, everything that got you to this point, your passions are wrong. They're just like, oh, cool. Like, there's a new thing out there that I wouldn't have expected or done, and now I get to engage with it in a different way. There, I think there's a willingness to learn, and every every fandom, every sector is going to have its underbelly. Except for Star Wars. Star exactly. Wars fandom is perfect. It's fine. Oh, right, of course. Yeah. That's the best. Don't worry about it. I mean, again, like the DC fandom, <laughs> it's like I, uh, I'll, I'll live stream with Perry Nemiroff sometimes on Fridays. And if we have a DC topic, the, the, ch- the live chat is just, we don't even have to say anything about it. People just jump in and they just start attacking you for no reason, just because they mm-hmm. think you're going to say something negative about it. Mm-hmm. And, or they're going to say something positive about it. <laughs> right, either way. It, positive or negative. You're screwed no matter what. It's just, it, uh-huh. you mentioned Zack Snyder's name and you have just fucked up your entire live stream for the entire night and it just doesn't make sense. But like, I do feel a little bit where the engagement I've had with people in the horror community who may say the wrong thing at first, and again, this is not all, there are still hurdles, but the engagements that I have had have been encouraging in the sense that 
uh, I wrote about the Friday the 13th remake and I said, it was better than the first three movies. That's my opinion. That's just where I stand on it. And some guy is like, oh, well, so obviously you're not a Friday the 13th fan. And I'm like, no, why, why do you draw that connection? Well, because you don't like that. This is your opinion. So obviously you can't like it as much as other people. And I'm like, but maybe that's because of all these reasons. And if you read what I wrote and like through doing that, he's like, oh, I probably phrased this comment very wrong. And I'm like, yes, you did. And it's like, I was able to get to a point with that person where at least it was like, why didn't you just say, oh, you view this in a different way than the, we appreciate this franchise in a very different way. And like getting there was not fun. I didn't have to do that. But at the same <laughs> respect, like I, I just, there was a willingness there at least to be like, oh, I fucked that up. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, and I, I do think that there is uh, that sense of ownership of those 80s slashers between Halloween or, you know, Child's Play or, Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street. And that is the closest that I've, I've seen, or in the, in the 90s scream, those are the closest I've seen to like the sort of fandom kind of toxicity that I've seen in DC or Marvel. But that is, and I think that's because we're, we're a lot of people that grew up on those. And so a lot of people feel like they have ownership, like this is the best series or, or this. And so when you bring up a point like the Friday the 13th remake, which I agree, it's better than the first three films. Uh, as someone that, that grew up watching those films, I also agree with that. Uh, but you have people taking ownership of it. And I think that that is where we start to see some of the more dangerous, dangerous is kind of a, maybe an over-exaggeration, but some of more the, the kind of toxic communities that we can see form, unfortunately. But I don't think we see that anymore. I, I was going to say, I think the last thing I'll say to that is I think horror as a medium does the best job of not pandering and teaching audiences. And I think that's the big difference. And I, I, I think that's the last point I'll try to make is the sense that a lot of other fandoms like to just make sure the fandom is happy and they're, they're getting their mm -hmm. dollars and that's totally fine. And again, don't get me wrong, your tentpole horror films are still gonna play to the masses and they're still gonna do that that kind of fan servicing that they need to. And if, if it's a haunted house film, we're gonna get the haunted house tropes, it's fine like that. But we do see a lot of progressive tendencies as horror evolves with our times and as horror evolves generation by generation it is forcing people that want to keep up with horror and want to keep being a horror fan to view those things i mean again even me just growing up in a small suburban town where everyone looks like me everyone dresses like me like that was my jersey hometown upbringing and the things that i could learn from watching horror movies as recently as his house like just even mm. that's one just pulling one out of the air la llorona we talk about history and horror all the time and that you know, Monaghan and I kind of the one thing we agree on. It's one of the best intersections you can have when history and the horror. One, the one thing we agree on. We agree one on of that. one of the one. one things. Okay, all right, fair, all right, fair. One, <laughs> one of the, of the things, things we agree on. But today, it's like I was able to learn so much from these, and able to learn so many things that like horror was my passport in a way. And I don't. I just don't think other genres, other areas, want to do that. I feel like horror, as it is more accepting, as we get that as filmmakers, as we get that as coverage, as journalists it forces people to either keep up or kind of fall off. And if you want to fall off, great, go stay with your eighties and just talk about them. But you know, if those people go to the wayside where everyone that does want to keep moving forward, that's who we get to keep interacting with. Just don't read the comments. Never. <laughs> I do. I still do, but don't. <laughs> well, we've been talking a bit about franchises. Um, and that seems like a very natural segue into today's film, which is, a franchise unto a franchise unto itself. So when we come back, we're going to be talking about Juan. We're going to get our grudge on, um, and we're going to go all the way back to the, the golden days, the early days of J-horror, Japanese horror, the year 2000. So stick with us. We'll be back in a sec. Well, hello everyone listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us for a very exciting conversation about all things J-Horror. Uh, you know, we always say at this point in the show that we couldn't do this without the support of our Patreon subscribers. And that is, it's because it's true. It's just because it's a fucking fact. And to prove it, we want to go ahead and do a couple of reads from some of our very loyal followers. They're going to make us say some things that we don't want to say. And that's just part and parcel of having an awesome community like this. So Donato, uh, why don't you go and do yours first? sigh okay if i have to this is brought to you by our patreon subscriber steph 
And she recently learned that I have just watched Josie and the Pussycats for the first time, and she mm-hmm. got very excited. And she wanted me to read some lyrics, not from a Josie and the Pussycats song, but from, well, okay, I'm just going to do it. We're just going to get there, and we're just going to get through this, and then, uh, yeah. Lying on your bed, staring up at the moon. You got me crazy, but I'll love you soon. I'm your backdoor lover, coming from behind, with the lights down low. Backdoor lover, just you and me. No one has to know. Backdoor lover, let me meet you. They are at your secret spot. I'll show you you will love more than hot. So that was uh, Backdoor Lover by DuJour, which means friendship that I have just found out on top of a lot of other things. But uh, yeah, and that that's what Steph made me do. Would you describe yourself as a backdoor lover, Matthew? Uh, it depends if it's a Friday or a Saturday. Okay. That is actually a totally fair answer. I have no jokes about that. Totally makes sense in my book. That's that's what I got. So uh, I hope yours is uh, less whatever that was. No, mine is pretty bad too. Um, so my wife, the uh, my wife, the wonderful, talented, compassionate Andrea Monagle has given me the following thing to read. And I'll provide a little bit of context after it's over. <clears throat> Another airing of marriage grievances. Peanut butter sandwiches should be made by spreading an even layer of peanut butter on a slice of bread. My method of making a peanut butter sandwich, knifing a hunk of peanut butter onto the bread with no spreading, and then mashing the other slice of bread on top to move it around, is inferior and lazy, and I renounce my ways. So, a little context for you. Uh, Andrea and I have like a little workout routine that we do every every week with uh, Peloton and stuff, and we set monthly goals. Whoever has the most minutes punishes the other person by setting a, like something they have to do in that month. And because Andrew got more minutes in February, my punishment for March is that I have to spread evenly, evenly spread peanut butter across all of my peanut butter sandwiches, which means, and you guessed it, I'm making no peanut butter sandwiches in the month of March. You're a, you're a psychopath. You are legitimately a psychopath. Only a fucking lunatic would put peanut butter on bread and smash it into place. No. You use a knife, even layers, you are so incorrect. No, because I don't do smooth peanut butter. I do chunky peanut butter. So you just mash it and then like squish it and then it all kind of fills the space that they want. What kind of bread are you using? Are you like white bread? If you're just mushing that together, it's just becoming like a blob. I don't understand this. You eat the non-peanut butter edges and then you have basically what is like one of those crustables that is just like a pocket of concentrated peanut butter meat. And when I die, it'll be because I had a wad of peanut butter in my non-spread sandwich that I choked to death on. That's not a sandwich. That's not even a sandwich. Sandwich even layers. What you are doing is literally just mashing peanut butter and bread together into this like weird blob combination that does not make sense in any right. You're never allowed in my kitchen, near my kitchen, or near any of my sandwiches. At the end of the day, we're all just trying to be or not be who we will when we were eight years old. And that is that is who I will be forever. I was eight years old. I made sandwiches that way, and I never outgrew it. Um, so there it is, folks. I really hope you feel like you got your money's worth, patrons. Uh, thank you for supporting the podcast and the website. I will never change the way that I make peanut butter sandwiches. I'd rather die. That's all I got. Welcome back. So today we're talking about on the show, Juwan the Curse. Now let's talk a little bit of brief history about Juwan the Curse, because if you've heard of Juwan, you're probably thinking, wait, are they reviewing, they were doing the one that came out in 2003, right? Like Juwan the Grudge, or they're talking about the Grudge, which is the Sarah Michelle Gellar one that came out in 2004. Wasn't there a TV show? Didn't the girl from the Grudge fight the girl from the ring? Like, so let's unpack for just a real brief second here. So, Juan the Curse is the original. It's the first feature film in the Grudge franchise. It is directed by Takashi Samizu. He got his start uh, as a short filmmaker. He was working underneath his mentor, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, who you might know from films like Pulse and Dark Water. Uh, he got the opportunity to direct a direct-to-video horror film using some of the ideas that he'd played around in a shorts anthology that he'd helped prepare some scripts for. That ultimately became Juan the Curse. Um, he played with Elements in Jew on the Curse we're going to talk about in a bit more detail that were specific to Japanese horror, that were kind of part and parcel from the rising wave of ghost stories in Japanese media. 
He also played with some cultural and traditional stuff. Uh, there's a dance form called Vuto, which kind of combines experimental theater with expressionistic movement. It was a style of dance and performance that came up in the years following World War II and kind of rooted itself both in post, uh, post-war tragedy and also you know post-atomic bomb tragedy as well. And from there, things just kind of, pardon the phrasing, blew up. Um, Shimizu became a director who directed multiple versions of the film. He directed a sequel to Juan the Curse. Then he remade Juan. Then he directed another sequel to that film and then directed an American version of the original film, the one that you're thinking of starring Sarah Michelle Gellar. In that process and in the eight, I think, eight plus additional films and video games and books and other media that came out, uh, there is a core set of beliefs. There's kind of a core set of mythology that developed over time for Juan and all of the sequels and remakes that came out. But it all begins here. It all starts right here with Juan the Curse, all of his original ideas, all of those original thematic elements that you know and love as part of the Grudge franchise started here. So we're going to talk about Juan the Curse. Forget all that other shit. We're going <laughs> back to the beginning. And our first question of the day is for you, Terry. And that is why this movie? You know, you know our rules, five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. So what made you think this is the one I want to talk about? Well, partly because uh, I, I do think this is kind of an anomaly for your films in that if you were to go look up Jew on the Curse on Rotten Tomatoes, you would find that it actually has 14 reviews. But of those 14 reviews, I think all of them are actually about Jew on the Grudge which was the movie that came out in 2002, 2003 and was released in the theaters in Japan and is the basis for the American remake. And so that Juwan the Curse was not available outside of Japan for the longest time. Unless you were like a young 20-something kid like me and decided to go look for it online, we'll just say. I and... saw the finger quotes and I heard the finger quotes. I'm just saying. <laughs> Giving you the, a double dose of finger quotes because... I I don't have the same reaction to American remakes that a lot of film people do because when I was in my 20s and I first saw The Ring and first saw The Grudge, it opened up a new avenue for me, a new place that I never knew existed. I didn't realize I was dumb. I didn't realize that people outside of Hollywood made films. And so when I saw this and then I realized that these are based on Japanese films, I was like, holy shit, there's this whole other country of movies i can go pull from and it sent me down a bunch of rabbit holes on on finding um j horror movies and some of them was really difficult because of course the subtitle issue but i remember stumbling upon jew on the curse after seeing jew after seeing the grudge in theaters and being really confused because while there are a lot of similarities to it and there's things that you can obviously see that have have influenced both the Juwan the Grudge release in Japan, but also the Grudge in the in United States. There's also a whole darker storyline that's happening underneath and in, in some of the, the sequences of it. And it's not as jump scare heavy as some of the later uh, iterations. It's more about creating this mood. And I think that a lot of people, I, I think because if you look at if you look at Rotten Tomatoes and you you see that there are basically no reviews for this movie that are actual reviews for this movie, I think this film in a lot of ways has been forgotten by mainstream uh, moviegoers because they think of Juwan the Grudge when they think of this this franchise. Yeah, and I can say, right, I, I can confirm basically what you just said because I was really not that aware of it. That That's me speaking relatively recently and saying I, I knew Juwan. Yeah, I, I knew the, the quote-unquote original, we'll say, um, and I knew the remake. Because the remake led me to that. And I, I very much had the same appreciation of remakes that you have uh, to the point where I have a column at Play Disgusting because I want to show appreciation to these remakes. There's a reason why I was able to find international cinema. And I can say that largely started with watching re- remakes that I didn't even know were remakes and realizing it just as yep. you said, Terry. So I, I think there is such a place to appreciate where those films came from while still appreciating the remake themselves. And Jew on the Curse is, to borrow your word again, an anomaly in the sense that it is the first iteration of a story that has been told so many times now. And a director, a single director, given the opportunity to refine that story and tell it in different ways and given different budgets to do it. I I mean, that just doesn't happen. Like, usually someone makes that little story 
they'll sell the rights. It'll get taken by somebody else. A different director takes it over. And that original filmmaker never really gets to do anything more than have a credit now where this guy just did them all. He literally did everything. Like he did the original. He did the Japanese remake. He did the remake in America. Like this guy got to see his baby. And I, I say that now knowing how that's going to play into Jew on the Curse. But he got to see his baby and nurture it and just bring it into the world in so many different different ways. I, I think that is so unique in this storyline alone. And it, it's why you have to appreciate the very first hack at it. You know, you have to appreciate where this all started. And it's kind of like seeing an early James Wan film where for me, like you watch Dead Silence and you can see where things are going to come into play later in Insidious, later in The Conjuring. Like that was him playing with his ideas. And don't get me wrong, that was James Wan playing with his ideas in a Hollywood studio system with a big budget. Jew on the Curse is a director playing with ideas with barely any budget. And as you just said, creating a nasty mood because that's what Jay Har did. Jay Har didn't have to do as many jump scares as American horror because that's what American horror like to do. They just rely on the jump scares where this J horror, you look at basically any of the films that are compared to their American remakes and it is just so atmospheric and moody and you're still going to get terrified, but it's not because something jumps at you and it's really quick. It's because that strangly haired demon of sorts is staring at the character dead in its face and it just sits there and it just, the dread is just palpable. So to see where it started, yes, it's the low-budget version. Yes, it's everything that maybe some people will only want to see the American remake or the remake itself in Japan. But this, for me, it's a bit of history. Yeah, it, you kind of talked a little bit about the way that the director is able to iterate on his on his movies throughout throughout the entire history of this of this franchise. And what I find is so fascinating is that really this started as a kernel of an idea that he made two short films in 1998 for a TV anthology that were one of them is called Katsa Katasumi and one is a bunch how, of fours. I think how, there's how 10 many of them. fours. Okay, how many fours exactly, Terry? Okay. okay. I think just it's checking. 10. Just making sure. <laughs> because the number four is is synonymous with death in I guess in in, in the Japanese language. And so that was like those were the two short films that he created and those two short films tell a story that is cut out of eventually when he goes to create Jew on the curse they fit into that that story with different actors but they fit into that story of of missing threads and so he he took those kernels of these two little mini scares that involve a little kid that meows and a creepy woman that bends her body in weird ways and then iterated that to make Jew on the Curse, which he made that, and then the sequel, which follows directly. Like it's, it actually uses 39 minutes of the first Curse movie, and then kind of does its own story retelling of it. And then he reiterates that again with the theatrical release. So we're seeing a director that is playing with these ideas, and it all really started with with this film, and such an interesting low budget. Like it was, it was a release to. It, I think it's called V Cinema. It was a straight to to video release, so it had a very small budget, but directors were able to play a little bit more and not have as many uh, producers weighing in on the story. And so he was able to go a lot darker than when he went with uh, Juwan the, the the Grudge. Gosh, it's hard to keep the names <laughs> the names separate. When he went to do Juwan the Grudge, it kind of turned him almost into a jump scare thon in a way. It's interesting because. I'll fully fess up that I have now seen two films in this franchise. I've seen The Grudge, the American remake that he remade, and now I've seen Jew on the Curse. So it's sort of interesting to go and see the highest concept, biggest budget, like mm. as many resources as you can version of the story he was trying to tell and go back to the beginning and find that there actually is not as much of a gap there as you would think. Like setting aside the fact that he's the one that goes back and direct, which is the not of seven, never happened, never happens. You know, the experience of watching The Grudge, um, I watched it for the first time, I think, two months ago, because my wife went on a really big horror binge, and I was like, I'm not going to fuck with it. Whatever you want, The Grudge, let's do it. I don't care. Like, whatever you want to watch. So we watched that. And then now sitting down and watching this, I was like, oh, like, these fit together so nicely. Like, yeah, like, one was made for whatever, and the other was made for however many millions it was. But there is the the experience of watching them isn't really that different. You're sort of like... I see what you're doing. Like it's effective. It works. The performances are worse probably because you are dealing with like, you know, less established actors and Jew on the curse, but the ideas behind it 
the way that the scares are set up and the way that they kind of manipulate the environment, this is a daytime horror film. It's good. It all works. And it's, it, it, I was expecting the thing that you see and Donato, you, again, you sort of talked about this when you were talking about James Wan. I was expecting to watch this and be like, oh, I see the pieces, but the hole wasn't there. I kind of saw the hole with this too. Joe and the Curse kind of just works as a movie, man. I, I agree. I, you know, I, I do think watching it, because uh, I, I watched it back in the early 2000s and then it had been a few years and I, I sometimes go revisit it or I'll find it if I can, if I can locate it because it's not readily available here right now. I mean, it's streaming on YouTube. Someone luckily put it up there, but it's not as readily available in the U.S. right now as it is as it might have been a couple of years ago, but it's it's something that always pull, that pulls me back in is that there's something about the way it's presented that it doesn't rely on jump scares. Everything is a little bit more subtle, and a lot of it had to do with the budget. So you know, it's not as as technically well made as as the the theatrical release that he did both in the U.S. and in Japan, but there are you can see the bones of the story here. And what I really liked is, is the way that it allows itself to go really dark. Cause I, what the scene that always gets me every single time is there's a, there's a character who um, he's married, his wife is pregnant and he has been through the entire movie sitting with the kid who it turns out is dead. And at one point towards the end, he gets a phone call from the boy's father. And this is the story that we see play out in all the grudges where the man kills his wife, kills his, his son and the cat, and then kills himself in, in the other movies is basically how it's portrayed. No, Kayako ends up killing him or whatever. But here I'd like to, I'd have... like to point out real quick, just to interrupt you for just a second. If cats have nine lives, that cat did not survive the grudge franchise. <laughs> I'm just saying there are at least 12 of these movies. There's that 13. Cat did, 13 movies and a TV, multiple TV shows. That cat did not get out okay. It did not get out okay. Somewhere around that, that that time, it really lost every single one of its lives. But there there's a there's a scene where the the teacher who has spent again most of the the his airtime because again the story is told non linearly non linearly, which again I really like. He gets phone call from the father who has gone to his his house and has killed his wife, and cut out their baby, and he excuse me calls him on the phone to say it's a, you have a baby and it's a girl. There's a shot of him in the phone booth. The phone booth is all bloody and he's holding this bloody remains of this, of this fetus that he cut out of the wife. And it's like, it's dark. It is dark and upsetting in a way that I don't, that you don't traditionally see the rest of the grudge movies go in. Donato looks very excited. Well, right then now. he like bashes it. He like starts he bashing it against it. the phone booth. <laughs> he's in a bloody phone booth and he's bashing the supported fetus. And then like he chucks it in the garbage as he's running away. Like, and that's when you get the garbage bag scare. But yeah, no, it, I was not prepared for the no the lowest budget version of this to be the darkest. And I mean, that's even taking into consideration the most recent remake uh, that Nicholas Pesce did. And the fact that like, that grudge was pretty dark. There were some dark elements in that, but still, Juan, the curse to me is it's the darkest iteration of this story's ever been in the daylight of all places. Like it, it plays that daytime horror the entire time. You still do get those phenomenal closet scares. You get the throat noises. And between Kayako and Toshio, you have the two villains in this, and there's no lacking makeup design. There's no lacking anything. When you see the full glimpse of these ghosts, these demons, they look like we've seen them over and over again. And it, don't get me wrong, it is a grainy quality if you're watching the YouTube rip. I'm sure when it was on Shutter, when it, these other places that had it, it was the same quality. That is where you can really tell. But outside of that, the architecture of the house looks exactly like it's been in all the mm -hmm. other films. The staircase scare, it's still there. It is still invasive and like in your face. And it's hard to escape that kind of just the sensation that it just keeps getting more vile and more evil and deadlier. And as the curse, the grudge continues to grow and it ensnares these people throughout. I actually liked the anthology format a lot because it was that exactly. It was an anthology. It was these bite-sized stories in the grudge universe that told, were told very succinctly. The, the movie flew by for me. It, it's not hard to follow at all. It doesn't find itself either over-explaining or under-explaining either way, given the anthology format. And I just really dig the non-linear. I, I, I had a lot of fun with that kind of vibe in this film. And I had a lot of fun with the way that 
it just didn't play like a normal haunted house film. It's like, nah, here's the house. Here's the grudge. We're just going to have some fun around it. Here's some characters. And that's, that's horror, baby. Yeah. I'm, um, I think one of the things that impressed me the most about it, um, is the fact that it brought haunted, haunted houses into the current millennium, you know, because especially if you watch a lot of American haunted houses, it's all the Amityville horror, right? Like it's this house that's clearly been around for a century and new people move in and they're like, this house is old, but we'll make it ours. (laughs) And then, you know, shit happens. Right. And I think the thing that was so impressive about watching this film was the way that they made these very antiseptic modern spaces. Like these are, this is, this, these are condominiums, right? These are or apartment buildings. These are not spaces that were designed to be distinct and to give you sort of like crannies to hide in, right? There are no on paper elements of this house that feel unique to that building or that particular family. It's just like cookie cutter, copy paste. Yep. And yet, yet they were still able to turn this very modern antiseptic space into something that's genuinely creepy and even when they're using the same space over multiple iterations of the people that live there, those little personal touches that people, the way that they arrange their home, the way they use mm. furniture and the way they set up bedrooms, that morphs the space in a way that's really interesting. And it makes it kind of creepy. And you're, you, it, it's a really surprising amount of depth from something that is supposed to be and intentionally supposed to be not deep at all. And that makes it, that that's the thing, I think, the scares, the crazy abortion stuff. I can't say that I saw it coming. But like, I was like, okay, like this feel like I, I, this makes sense. If somebody's on his game, you can do this. It was the way that they turned this apartment complex into uniquely terrifying building or like a a haunted house. I was like, I did not think you were going to be able to make this place scary. And you kind of did. You really did. Yeah. And, and like, like you both have said, they did it during the day because a lot of the film takes place in bright areas where there's no, you know, it's not a Gothic story. There's not a lot of areas where there's shadows. There's not places where things can hide. It's a lot of brightness and it's the scenes where it contrasts this brightness with a lot of, with a lot of dark stuff where there's, there's a scene where this uh, one of the, the kind of tutors of the, of this family in one of the sets walks out is in this bright room. She keeps hearing this cat meow and she walks out into the hall and all of a sudden they're playing with it and it's now dark and the hallway is very moody. It's very dark. And so it's that contrast of this brightness and then walking into this thing where it's like, Oh, there's something wrong here. And then she flees back into the brightness and it's, that's where she ends up getting herself killed. But then there's also kind of taking that traditional haunted house story and turning it on its head. This is another case that's happened throughout the the grudge series where you're not just safe in this house because the there's one uh, anthology set piece that's set at a school where the girl is being haunted by the ghost of, of Toshio that's pitter padding around in this dark a teacher's room and so it's this idea that you're not safe if you leave the house you're still not safe that ghost is going to follow you because you have entered this area of negativity briefly yeah it's it's very you know you think of all a lot of the j-horror stuff at the time that was dealing with kind of like proto computer stuff right like the mm. concept of viruses and the with the ghost in the machine over and over and over again the fact that they do treat this this haunting more like a virus is, is probably one of the most unique things. Like it shouldn't, there should be a part of you that watches that scary scene in the school and thinks, Oh, you're breaking the rules. You can't do this. But instead you're like, Oh shit, you go in the house for a minute and wherever you end up in life, this thing is going to get you and it's going to kill you. And it becomes part of like that viral element of the scares. And I think just on a storytelling perspective, it is a lesson in a way to a lot of filmmakers because I think it'd be very easy for a lot of mainstream viewers to watch Jew on the Curse and immediately be like, well, of course, I'm just going to watch the American version if I really want to watch a horror film. And I understand that. I mean, the appetite for low-budget indie horror is not as prevalent in the mainstream as it is with us critics and people who study horror and things of that nature. But I was very impressed because, number one, I mean... I said the effects thing already. It it holds up. To me, it holds up. There's a few CGI scenes where, all right, you got a girl with a missing jaw and her tongue flops out. Does it look great? No. Do I still see horror movies today that look maybe even worse? Yeah. Like the fact that this is 2000, he pulled off that effect versus a 2021 film that does the same thing. I, I weigh those a little differently. But 
the storytelling is impressive in the sense that, I mean, a director made his movie. He took a shot. And was it low budget? Did it take a lot? Yes and no. I'm sure it took a tremendous effort to get done on the director's part and the entire crew's part. But when you compare it to a studio production, no, you can't really compare the two. This was down and dirty. This was do it yourself. But what it birthed and what it was able to become, like it's almost iconic to watch something happen like that. It's almost, it's just how you can see this little seed and watch it grow into the different Hollywood iterations that it has had. And not even, sorry, not Hollywood, like J-Horror, American Hollywood, everywhere it's been and everywhere it's gone to. It all started with this tiny little film. And that's what this is. This is a tiny little film, a tiny little anthology that was probably shot in way less time than we even would presume it to be. That's just, it, like, it's so amazing. Like, honestly, it is just so amazing to watch it again. That's because the same creator was involved in so many of the projects that came after. You, it's, it is the biggest testament to just going out and shooting your shot. I, I, like, this is, this is the example. Well, and you, you talk about iconic and, I think you have to use that word with this with this film, whether it's low budget or whether it's not been seen or not, because there are shots in this film that have resonated through each iteration of 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 the grudge. There's the scene where someone's looking out of the window and Toshio is sitting Toshio, who they believe is a, is alive, is sitting on the, the couch and he just sort of opens his mouth and meows like that is in the American remake. That is in the original the uh, the, the the grudge, the japanese theatrical release there's the scene of kayako pulling herself down the staircase like these are and then the, the scene with the jaw like these are iconic scenes that have lasted through various iterations of this of this series and it all started here in a very low budget do-it-yourself or releasing straight to video type of type of manner and i think that i think that's amazing so let me let me ask this then um because this is usually the part on the show where we start to talk about legacy, right? Um, we start to dig into what allows these films or what might encourage these films to, to succeed with audiences for the foreseeable future. We've talked about the fact that this is a weird one because if you are of a certain age, probably the first grudge that you saw, even if you were savvy with J-Horror, was the 2003, 2002, 2003 Jew on the Grudge because that was the one that got a theatrical release. That was the one that got larger distribution. For all intents and purposes, for an entire generation of horror fans, that's probably the first Juon film. The fact that this is really the first Juon film, and in a lot of ways, um, based on the way you two are describing it better than some of the ones that came afterwards, certainly more worth your time. You know, does it become does it become this academic exercise where you're like, oh, you know, you have to kind of develop the chronology of it, and this came first, and you have to you have to explore the VHS components that would later be able to come into like yada yada yada. Is it just one of those things where only people who really care about the historiography of the Juon franchise are going to be into this? Or do you think there it becomes this sort of hatchet cut where over time people are like, okay, there's 12, there's 13 grudge movies, but like The Curse, the American remake, the second, you know, what see whatever, what whatever order you want, are people going to be able to sort of pick and choose all the cart and say, you know, there are all these movies, but these are the ones you should care about? Well, I, I would say that if you are interested in Juwan as in the the Japanese movie more so than than the American movie then I would say that this is if you watch the series from Juwan the Curse to Curse 2 to the Grudge to the Grudge 2 you would see not only not only kind of a remake of the ideas introduced in the in the Curse but you would also see uh, the storylines, because while The Grudge is, in, in all intents and purposes, a reboot slash kind of remake of The Curse, there are aspects of both The Grudge 2, or The Grudge and The Grudge 2, the ja- talking Japanese one, that are continuing the story that started, not necessarily remaking it, but actually continuing it. There are scenes in The Grudge and Grudge 2 that reference both The Curse and The Curse 2. And there are scenes all the way going all the way through the series of the Japanese version of The Grudge that pull from this original series. So if you want to see a complete story and you are interested in in the Japanese version of The Grudge, then I would say that watching this from The Curse to the end, you will pick up things that are story related not necessarily a remake but a story related from that original that original film and that's what i think is so interesting 
the way that the curse, like the idea is that the curse, something happens and then the, the curse continues from there. And that has been kind of this, this prevalent idea between all of the, the grudge movies. And so the way that you see that this, this film sort of spirals out from this original, this original film while keeping almost in, in some way, a same timeline throughout most of the, the Japanese grudge is, is fascinating to watch more so than just a, a historical artifact of 2000. It's it's actually telling a story that influences the idea of the grudge being a curse that sort of spirals throughout time. Yeah, and Monica, you mentioning academic is, I think, something that I'll hit upon more in the sense that if you are a super fan of the grudge, and I mean that in the Japanese films, in the American films, in all the iterations you have to see the curse. I mean, you have to understand where it all came from. I wholeheartedly suggest it because you go in with the disclaimer that, listen, this was the very first one. And this was made for a low budget, as we said 17,000 times. We'll say it again. This is the low budget version of The Grudge. But if you are into everything you've seen so far and you're so obsessed with Kayako and The Grudge itself and the idea of this just entity that cannot it cannot move on in certain senses until there is some kind of relief and everything that spirals from that, you need to see the curse because you need to see where it all started. But if you are a outsider, if you dabble in horror, if this is something that the grudge franchise is kind of just, I saw the American, I liked it enough. It's hard to recommend the curse because it does fall into a more filmmakers aspect where I would say it's a filmmaker's film in the sense that any other filmmaker watching The Curse and just talking about it the way we have and using the word iconic and saying, my God, like you watch what this guy did and how he turned it into all these different ideas and how it became what it became. That's the bigger talking factor. I think there's a lot more value in the academic approach where it's written about, where it's appreciated by other filmmakers and where it is discussed amongst the horror faithful versus it's going to be a hard sell to the mainstream audience. It's going to be a hard sell yeah. to somebody that is not into the indie mindset where when they go to Walmart and they see the, the dollar bin, they immediately run away. Like you have to have a little bit of that, uh, I guess that like indoctrination in a way. If you went to Blockbuster and you got the $3 movies that were there eventually when they couldn't be rented, you're going to be okay with the, the curse. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll back that up just a little bit and say that, you know, there is... There has been a lot of really good stuff written and there continues to be a lot of really good stuff written about sort of that North American Japanese pipeline of horror in the early 2000s and the way that the two cultures really started to feed off of each other and created sort of a feedback loop where, you know, American American horror films inspired a generation of Japanese filmmakers who then created movies that would inspire a generation of American filmmakers. It's like, it's, it's such an interesting thing, and there has been a lot of really good academic stuff written about it, a lot of really good essays, a lot of really good collections of essays about early, early 21st century horror, and Japanese horror in particular, um, that, you know, there, there are, there, whatever the line is where it's something you have to watch because it's, it's of importance to, you know, the era in which it was released, I think it's safe to say that Jewel and the Curse easily crosses that hurdle this is not a movie that you should watch only because you're interested in kind of developing the history of the era there's a lot to like here um and it's a lot of fun and especially and donato i think you said this well if you're an aspiring filmmaker if you're somebody who is on tiktok right now making really kick-ass you know two minute short horror films um for an audience that started as just your mom and now is like thousands of people i guarantee you're going to watch something like jew on the curse and be like fuck i could do that and you know what you probably can, and you probably should. Shoot your shot. Shoot your shot. Shoot your shot. All right, gentlemen, that is it. That is this episode of Certified Forgotten. So, Terry, I want to say thank you for being a great guest, for being our first video guest again. I just can't drive home how uncomfortable you've looked this whole time being on <laughs> camera with us. Um, but for those uh, for those of our listeners who are really excited by some of the stuff you were talking about, some of the projects you have and are involved in, you know, if they want to learn more about you, where do they go? Where's the where's the best place on social to to follow you in the couple of projects that you have? 
Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Gaily Dreadful. Uh, my my podcast is Scarred for Life, and it's at Scarred Podcast on Twitter. And we, as Monogal said, we've been interviewing a lot of directors recently. So we have uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, an episode a couple like last month. And we have a couple coming up with uh, Natasha Kermani, the director of Lucky. And we have um, Anthony Scott Burns, the director of Come True. So we have a couple of those coming up soon in, in March. Um, and then... Yeah, my website is www.gailydreadful.com, and that's where you'll find all of my writing for the most part. Donato? You can find me, at always, at Donato Bomb on the Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. You can find my reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. You can find everything else. Follow my authory page, where it all collects nicely for you, and it'll come out in a little newsletter, and it's great. Otherwise, I'll just yell about it on Twitter. And, uh, oh yeah, live streams every Friday with Perry Nimmeroff. So, that's, that's about all I've got, I think. Yeah, I have to say, I signed up for your newsletter, which I forget every week until I get an email from you on Thursday. I'm like, oh, shit, what did I forget about the site? And then, nope, it's just your authory thing, spitting a bunch of articles at me. Read As for my myself, work, Matt. Care. <laughs> I support your work. Isn't that enough? Yes, um, Fair enough. As for myself, you can follow the newly Rotten Tomatoes certified Matthew Monagle. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> don't humor him Damn. Terry <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter Labsplice L-A-B-S-B-L-I-C-E um, you should if you haven't already you should go check out certifiedforgotten.com you know, we are one of many websites that I think are doing some really interesting stuff with horror we're continuing our mission statement established in this podcast to go dig up the weird stuff so do go check it out do go read it if you're a writer pitch us something weird man odds are we're probably going to say yes and I believe the only other thing that I have to do, I have anything else I need to promote right now? No, nope, that sounds about it. Go sign up for my authory bio so that you'll get emails from me every Thursday and wonder what you did or what I did. That's good too, right? Also, we have a Patreon. Maybe, maybe mention that too. Oh, we do have a Patreon. You could give us money. And you might think, oh, do Matt and Matt keep that money? No, no. We immediately turn around and give that money to writers and spend so much of our own money to pay our writers too. It's great. I wouldn't change a goddamn thing. Um, but yes, do sign up for our Patreon. There's a bunch of different tiers. You don't need to get to, if you just want to dabble your foot a little bit in the waters, um, know that every dollar that you spend is going right back to some of the contributors on the site. And the more money you give us, the more often we can hire Mary Beth McAndrews, which is good for the Scarred for Life podcast too. So it's it's an incestuous mm-hmm. little circle of podcasts <laughs> and horror sites we got going on right here. It's good for all of us. All right, that is our episode. Terry, thank you again. Uh, you gave us two movies. We picked this one, but that means you got to come back on and do the other one sometime too. I'm sorry. Hey, I will be happy to come back and talk about uh, poodle puppets. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Oh, deep breath, Matt. You can do this one. This is definitely a Matt movie. It's not going to be zombie ass. All right, well, we'll have you back on. We'll have you talk about poodle puppets. Um, Donato, that is our episode. Can you please take us off in some fun way? Hey, remember when we did zombie ass?